Welcome to the Danny Picard Show. This is the best of 2017 edition of the show. Presented by Beantown Athletics. Beantown Athletics is Boston's go-to destination for customized screen printing and embroidery. Get more information on their website, beantownathletics.com. It's also presented by DraftKings. Play for free at DraftKings.com or on the DraftKings app by using my promo code PIC. That's P-I-C. And by the Dorchester Group. Put somebody from the neighborhood in your corner. Call the Dorchester Group right now at 617-869-4464. That's 617-869-4464. Maximize your return today with the Dorchester Group. So... Here's what I've done. Much like last year, I gave you a best of 2016 edition. This is the best of 2017 edition. And a little rundown for you. 12 different audio clips. Now, it's not one from each month. Uh, There are a couple months where I have multiple clips from that month. There are a couple months where I don't have a clip at all. But if you're looking for a little breakdown of each and every clip, well, depending on where you're getting this podcast, either on my website, dannypicard.com, on iTunes, on Google Play, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, or even Podcast One, I give a little description of each and every clip, a little rundown. So if you're looking for the breakdown of every clip and maybe the meaning behind it or what exactly you're about to hear, then um, that's where the breakdown is. So you can always read to get the breakdown, or you can just listen right through. You will laugh. You will cry. You will beg for more in 2018, and I will be back in 2018, and uh, we'll continue to build. We built a lot in 2017. Uh, We joined the Podcast One Network. Uh, We're even available on a couple of the different outlets like iHeartRadio for one. So we're building. We'll continue to build in 2018, but here is the best of 2017. Enjoy. It begins with... My reaction to the Patriots winning the Super Bowl, and it ends with my reaction to Giancarlo Stanton getting traded to the New York Yankees. And in the middle of it all, I tweeted this week that I think my favorite podcast of 2017 and my favorite clip of 2017 was my conversation with Justin Barrasso from Sports Illustrated. He's Sports Illustrated's pro wrestling insider, and he was telling stories about He's telling behind-the-scenes stories about old-school WWF, and the one story that I, it was just my favorite podcast and my favorite clip was the story he told of how the birth of Stone Cold Steve Austin's Austin 316, was, which was really the birth of Stone Cold Steve Austin. You know, Stone Cold, the man himself, existed in wrestling way before Austin 316 was created. But when Austin 316 was created at the King of the Ring, when he won the King of the Ring that year, that's really when Stone Cold Steve Austin became Stone Cold Steve Austin. And he talks about how it's really the click that, you know, you look back at the click and and what something that the click did at Madison Square Garden, how the click actually helped create Stone Cold Steve Austin, or at least helped give Stone Cold Steve Austin his moment. That was my favorite moment from this podcast in 2017, but I'll let you be the judge. Without further ado, here it is, the best of 2017 of the Danny Picard Show. Enjoy. The New England Patriots with the greatest comeback in sports history. And the reason the Patriots fell behind the way they did early in this game was simple. Turnovers. 
the fumble by Blunt, and then the Brady interception. All right, those two things. If you had told me going into this game that LeGarrette Blunt was going to turn into Lawrence Maroney on Super Bowl Sunday, I would have told you, we're going to have some problems if that's who we're going to rely on early in this game to get you a first down on third and one. I don't even know how to judge it. You know, I don't know how to judge the Lady Gaga performance because I hated my life at that point. <laughs> All time low. I hated my life during the Lady Gaga performance. You've got to get that ball. You needed that turnover. You needed that championship play. And that's what everybody and their mother who was rooting for the Patriots was thinking. We need a turnover. If Hightower doesn't get in there and strip that ball and get that ball loose, what was it, third and one, Matt Ryan's back to pass, he doesn't get that ball. They don't get that ball with the field position they had after that. I mean, you don't win this game. And then you get... Trey Flowers coming in with the sack. Then you get the penalty that puts him back, what, like 10 more yards, and they're out of field goal range. You get the ball back. You get a drive. Tom Brady does his thing. Jimmy White does his thing. Edelman's doing his thing. Amendola's doing his thing. You got to give credit to Malcolm Mitchell. Tapping the ground in front of me three times. I was taking my hat off, and I was rubbing my head one, two, and I rubbed my head two more times, four times, one, two, three, four, and I put my left hand on the couch. And I would take my hat off and do this, Dude, one, two, three, nuts. four. Think about how many people across every the country were doing this shit. Before every single play. And it worked. It worked, yeah. With everything that went wrong in the first half, you needed a lot to go your way. You needed some type of luck, but you also needed to be surgical. And you also needed a mentality to where you don't panic. And so where I'm sitting there and you're sitting there panicking about the clock running out. Doing push-ups. They're going, hey, we know what we need we know we're going to have a chance to get it. <laughs> it's unbelievable. And, and I have to put on TV, and I see this stupid show with Stephen A. Smith and Max Kellerman, and they have a question, is Tom Brady the greatest of all time? Like, if you actually are going to debate this, like, if this is up for debate with you right now, is Tom Brady the greatest of all time? If you're questioning that still, I don't even, I'm not even... I'm not even going to get mad at you because it's not right to get mad at someone who obviously has a, a, a problem. I'm serious. You got Arthur Blank down on the sideline. Goodell was probably so happy. The Wahlbergs left. <laughs> I love that. I love that they left. Oh, I love it. Colin Coward, he's on Twitter going, nah. you know, the Patriots should probably keep Jimmy Garoppolo. And I talk with a radio voice all the time, even when I tweet. Dickhead. 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 You know what? You know what my message is? Tony Romo, bring it. Come to the AFC. Come to the AFC to get your ass kicked, big dog. This run isn't over because you're probably going to Minnesota next year. Who's stopping you? Honestly, tell me. Who's stopping the Patriots? I'd like to hear it, and I'd like to hear the reason why. How? If the Falcons, after leading that game last night, 28-3, to if they couldn't win that game, who's going to beat the Patriots? Let it play. Let it ride out. Might as well just close it out with this, too. Let's just close it out. Let's wrap it up. I might just call it quits. I might just call it quits. Walk off. Let's do a walk off podcast. Is this it for me? Should I just end it?
Is it going to get better than this? I should just have a separate podcast of conspiracy theories. Because I have many of them. Many. Uh, listen. Your eyes lit up. I connect the dots on things that people would have no idea I connect the dots on. Like, people, even just in this business I'm in, like, oh, he's friends with him, he's friends with him. Huh? What, you think I have no street smarts? You think I don't know what's going on? You think I don't know who's friends with who and who's holding who back and who's telling who what? I fucking know, okay? I get it. I got Pete, I got some conspiracy theories that get go beyond anything you have ever thought of in your entire life. Sports related? And one of them is sports related. Jimmy Garoppolo, like Brandon Cooks, Saints, Browns, Patriots. Saints want the 12 overall pick. Patriots say, we'll give you 32. Saints say, we want 12. Patriots say, how the fuck are we getting 12? Saints say, you're training Garoppolo to Cleveland. We already heard the Cleveland reports. You're getting 12 from Cleveland. They say, no, we're not. They're saying, yeah, you are. We're not doing anything until we see you make that deal. Patriots get back to Foxborough. They go, how can we convince the Saints that we're not trading Garoppolo, even though we probably will? We'll tell Adam Schefter to report it. Rondo is in charge of the invites because he is running this little getaway destination vacation to celebrate the 2008 Celtics World Champions. Problem is, there are a couple guys that are not going to be going to this, or at least as of right now, have not been invited. And the biggest name that has not been invited, and, and this is what the Mock Spears story and the Undefeated is all about, Ray Allen. Ray Allen has not been invited. And even though Rondo's doing the invites, and I say, well, Rondo and Ray Allen, they didn't really see eye to eye when they were together anyways uh, on the Celtics. Rondo said he asked a couple of the guys, which is probably Paul Pierce, Kevin Garnett. I'm sure those are the guys he asked. Asked a couple of the guys. Here's what Rondo said. He goes, I asked a couple of the guys. I got a no, a no head shake. That's talking about Ray Allen, whether or not he should invite Ray Allen to the party, to the destination vacation. So the Celtics, this isn't just Rondo, this is as a team, the 2008 championship Celtics have decided to not invite Ray Allen to their destination vacation celebrating the 10-year or soon-to-be 10-year anniversary of their world championship. And you would think that the whole team would be there. However, they're not going to invite Ray Allen. And the reason, maybe I should clarify this, the reason is because they still look at him jumping ship, going to the Miami Heat to team up with LeBron James and Dwayne Wade and Chris Bosh. They look at that as a quote-unquote betrayal. That's the word that you see thrown out in this story. And, um, you know, it's tough for me to sit here and say, get over it. Because I think if you did put yourself in Paul Pierce, Kevin Garnett's shoes, I think you would look at it and go, he did betray us. I mean, he did go to the other side. And when you listen to Rondo talk about it, or some of these guys talk about it, they, in fact, have tried to get in touch with Ray Allen, and they had to get in touch with him when he jumped ship. And he didn't even return calls. They didn't talk to him. You know, how true that stuff is, I don't know. 
would I be upset if I were those guys? Yeah, I think I would. I think he'd, I think I'd be upset with that. Um, I mean, I, I go back and forth. How much can I even blame Ray Allen for doing it, though? I mean, he goes on. He obviously made the right decision. He goes on to win championships with Miami. So it's it, it's a bad look, and it sucks. And before I sit here and 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 really take the side with this vacation and take the side of of the Celtics not inviting Ray Allen, I look at it too and think back and go, Ray Allen, you know what? He didn't choose to come to the Celtics. Like, like he never chose to come to Boston. He was traded on draft night. The Celtics traded the number five overall pick along with what? Delonte West, Wally Zerbiak, and who else? And, and the number five pick, right? Uh, they had the number five pick. They got unlucky in the lottery. Draft night, they made that trade. And they get a pick in return with Ray Allen, which eventually led to the, the drafting of big baby Glenn Davis. Right? I mean, Ray Allen got traded. And the Celtics, according to those reports of that trade, they were the ones heavily pursuing this trade. Now, I know Garnett got traded too. But Garnett was in a situation where he kind of had some more say, didn't he? Like, he rejected the trade to the Celtics at first. And then the Celtics traded for Ray Allen, and Kevin Garnett was like, all right, I see what you're doing. All right, yeah, sign me up for this trade. Let's pull the trigger on it. Gave the okay. So essentially, Garnett still did get to choose. It's not like Ray Allen chose to come to the Celtics. Okay? And, you know, because of that, I don't know that I look back at it with any animosity towards Ray Allen. Like, I don't. I could see those guys being upset but I guess now, 10 years later, you understand that Ray Allen was such a huge part of the championship. <sighs> Extend the invite. I would, I would, see, I would put the ball in his court. Because then it's like, all right, then you go to Mark Spears of the Undefeated and you tell him, hey, we extended the invite to Ray Allen and he's still betraying us. He didn't want to go. Right? I mean, I mean, if the if there's such bad blood and those guys haven't talked and you extend the invite, what, you think Ray Allen's going to go? No, he's not going to go. So, I mean, I, that's the way I would do it. And, and so it kind of does look childish on the Celtics right now. They, they they look childish. I understand that they're upset. I get it. I also understand Ray Allen's part of it back then. Um, now, you're not going to invite the guy? I'm not going to sit here and get too worked up about a, a 10-year anniversary destination vacation party for an NBA champion. But... Let's be honest. Who looks more foolish here? Ray Allen or the Celtics? I think when you break it down the way I just broke it down, it's the Celtics. As much as I love that team, I love that group. If you're celebrating the 2008 championship, how could you possibly celebrate that without Ray Allen being invited to the party? That's stupid. You should have invited him to the party knowing that he was not going to accept, and then you make him look like he's continuing to betray the group. That's how you pull this thing off, right? That's how you skillfully invite someone that you know doesn't want to be to the party so you make them look bad, not you. Why am I so skilled in that thought? I have no idea. But I, I like to put some thought. And see, I consider myself a thinker. You know, I put myself in Belichick's shoes. I told you what I do with Malcolm Butler. I'm a thinker. I put myself in Rondo and the Celtics' shoes there from, you know, 2018. And, you know, I'm a thinker. I believe I think it out the right way. You know, break it down. Don't just come up with this decision and like, hey, should I invite Ray? Nope. Fuck him. He betrayed us. 
There's a way to pull this off to still make him look bad and make you guys look good. Instead, you guys look a little childish. Right? Because I got news. I got news for him. As much as I love Paul Pierce, as much as I love Kevin Garnett, and you know what? In those days, I loved Rondo a lot more than some other people did in this town. As much as I love that team, they're not having a destination vacation celebrating a championship if it wasn't for Ray Allen. Okay? You could say that about all the big three. But Ray Allen was part of the big three and just as big as the other pieces of that big three. That's all I'm saying. There's no celebration 10-year anniversary if it's not for Ray Allen. Anything's possible. Anything's possible! <laughs> you want to hand the reins to, you know, give the keys to the cards to Anton Adolvin? Go ahead. Good luck with that. Let me know how that works out. Because Anton Adolvin sucks. All right, you want to break it down? Here's my analysis of Anton Adolvin. He's terrible. There's a reason why they released him or put him on waivers in January. And there's a reason why nobody fucking picked him up. Because he sucks. But you want to, you want him to be the Bruins goalie the rest of the fucking year? What? How stupid is that? Anton Hadobin is terrible. I can't explain to you just how bad he is. Though I, I kind of tried. The first four months, the Bruins have 26 wins. Tuka Rask had 25 of those wins. What, you think the backups didn't play? Yeah, they played. They lost. They sucked. If you're going to take a stretch here in the last week and a half, and you're going to decide, guess what? Let's hand it off to Anton Hadovin to carry us into the playoffs. You're an idiot. People who cover the National Hockey League, they have one job, and they're trying to tell me that Anton Hadovin should be the goalie the rest of the season. Good luck with that. Let me know how that goes. We're talking about the Undertaker because he had a problem with Shawn Michaels, who's in the click, and we're talking about behind-the-scenes stories. That what br- that's what brought you into this. In Boston. And, and the click, you have a story right now on SI.com, and I just read it the other day, and that's what Triple H gave you a shout-out about. And, and let me read the headline. It says, how Paul Levesque used the lessons he learned as a wrestler to build WWE's new brands. Paul Levesque is Triple H, and you talk with Triple H, and you said you went to Connecticut, sat down with him, had a one-on-one. It's a great piece, but you talk about how he uses a moment with the click. 1996, Madison Square Garden. We've all seen the video. It's it's like a home video from the balcony that you can older. barely see, <laughs> where it's Shawn Michaels, Triple H, Scott Kevin Hall. Nash, and Scott Hall. And, oh, I, I should say to some people, Razor Ramon and Diesel, Correct. right? Right, right. Um, and they're all hugging in the ring, doing their little, you know, Wolfpack sign or whatever, signs, two right? sweet sign, and they're up on, on, on the cage, right? There was a steel cage, like the old school blue steel cage. Michaels beat Diesel in the main event. Right? And that was Diesel and Shawn Razor Ma- Ramon's last night in the WWE. Right. Last event. Razor's a good good guy. Razor's a fit baby face. Shawn Michaels is a good guy. Kevin, excuse me, Diesel, Kevin Ash, yep. and Hunter Hearst Helmsley, Triple H, they're, they're heels. 
So allegedly, the story goes, if you listen to Michaels, if you listen to Nash, Hall, they've all said the same story. Paul Levesque said the same, Triple H said the same thing, that Sean got the okay from Vince. Hey, I want to do this. And I bet that Vince had so many requests from, from Sean, he just said, sure. I'd love to, if I ever get Vince McMahon in the same room, someday I'll ask that question. Mm-hmm. But, so allegedly they have the okay from Vince. Paul was, Triple H was interesting. He said that Vince was hesitant to do it. So they go out, the match is over, they all go in the ring together, and they start hugging it out, which today is pretty common. But in 1996, I think with everything with wrestling, it's context. Guy, bad guys and good guys. The internet changed the business. So the internet's just growing then, too, with America mm-hmm. Online. And what Triple H said was, he heard the crowd light up. He heard the crowd, and it's a, it's a, MS, it's a Madison Square Garden house show in 96, but he said that that crowd was the biggest pop of the night at the end of the show, after the matches end, after the crowd spent. They loved the fact that they could see this real moment. Nobody else liked it behind the scenes, but you can't punish Shawn Michaels. He's your world champ, right? Diesel and... Uh, Razor Ramon are off the WCW gone. to revolu- little do we know revolutionize begin the, the NWO exactly. So what do you do? So you they took it all out on Paul Levesque, and I love that story where Vince said you're going to learn to eat. Can we swear on the air? Sure. You're going to learn to eat shit and like it. Yeah, I learned, Can we know. swear on the air? Yeah. You ever listen to this show? Come on, <laughs> it's a, wide open here. Whatever you want to say, you're right gonna, here on the Danny Picard show. You're going to learn to eat shit and like the taste of it. And Paul said, that's fine. I'll do whatever you want, but I just need to know at the end of this, it's over. Because if it's not over, then I'm never going to be any good to you. I'm never going to be able to be myself here. And Vince said, once your punishment's over, you're supposed to win King of the Ring, which is really fascinating because they pull it from him, the King of the Ring tournament, that spring, Mm -hmm. goes to Steve Austin. He beats Jake Roberts in the finals. Which... That's the Austin. It's Austin's moment. You want to talk about John 316? Let's talk about Austin 316 just kicked your ass. That's supposed to be triple Hunter Hearst Helmsley beating Jake Roberts. And I don't care what happens there. Wow. It's not the same. It's not the Austin. Whatever Triple H would have done there, it just couldn't have been the Austin. That was his time. Austin was – the best part of Austin is we're getting off track. He was legitimately pissed off. Like, Austin was legitimately mad. We did an interview last – I went to his place in Marina Del Rey last June, and that was really cool to be in Steve Austin's Well, by house. the way, I don't know if we can say this, but – colleague of mine now that I'm on the podcast one network Stone Cold Steve Austin I don't know maybe yes. me and him are colleagues I don't know maybe that word's too strong right now maybe it's too soon but we do have our podcast on the same network now that I'm part of podcast one but go of, ahead it's gonna be a hell of a Christmas party <laughs> I just want the invite the kid gray come on give me the invite the best part of that was I thought I'm waiting outside like a gated gated house in Marina Del Rey in Austin I didn't want to go in early because well, I don't know what if he's feeding his dog what if he's Checking his mail. I don't, I don't want to go to the man's house early. Mm-hmm. So it's funny. I'm waiting outside the gate. I don't know if there's cameras or not, but there must have been because he came out and he said, what the hell, bro? Aren't you going to come in? And I said, well, of course, but I didn't want to. Sure. What the hell do I know? But uh, Austin was legitimately pissed off. So that moment was his. But it's strange to think, like, what if they didn't have the curtain call? Well, then Austin doesn't have his moment. Do they ever give Austin a microphone? Austin, if you watch his old ECW stuff, he was the Steve Stone Cold Steve Austin character a little bit more raunchy, a little bit more raw in ECW. They watch this. They say, wow, this guy's great, but they don't want him to talk. They bring him in. They give him Ted DiBiase as a mouthpiece. But the curtain call to get back on that is fascinating because it definitely changes the business, and it really is where we are now. People love the fact that these guys talk as themselves. I'm on the fence about it some nights, but like on Talking Smack, which I like a lot, it's after SmackDown on the the WWE Network, Mm. guys in interviews, they'll kind of split it. Half the interview will be as the character, Half is the person. And sometimes I have a little bit of a problem with that. But it's an interesting format. It's still evolving. And Triple H was definitely at the forefront of that. So it was really interesting that 
he's always looked at how can we change this? How can we make it better? And a lot of people have disliked him for that, but he is where he is. Why, explain to me why Stone Cold. Let's go back because there's so much that I have questions about. You're mentioning this stuff behind can I the met, scenes. Can I why was quick? Stone Cold upset? In general? Why was he upset that that was his moment? Just in general. Well, he, he was. Don't he you was, want that moment? He was looked over in WCW for years, and then they. It's starting to get some. He's the U.S. champion. They're starting to get some steam behind him. Hulk Hogan comes in. He can't stand Hulk Hogan. Randy Savage comes in. He respected Randy, but Jim Duggan comes in. He's doing jobs to Jim Duggan. And Duggan's at the end of his career at this point, right? And Austin's supposed to be the next star. Austin gets fired by FedEx, uh, by Eric Bischoff. Bischoff said it, and he's admitted he was wrong. A guy in black tights will never go anywhere in this business. You're too boring. So Austin's mad. Then he goes to ECW. He's hurt there, but he cuts some great promos. He cuts some great stuff. If you YouTube Steve Austin, ECW, Sandman, Mikey Whipwreck, you'll, you'll be captivated for a good half hour. And then he comes to WWE as the ringmaster. They don't let him talk. I mean, wrestling, when you get down to the roots of it, right, it's, mm-hmm. it's men in tights, half-naked men wrestling. So you need a story. You need to be able to talk. If you take away, if you take away Steve Austin's voice, he's nothing. And I think he knows that. But if you can give He knows him, that now. I think he knew it then, too. He knew it then, okay. Without his voice, he wasn't anything. So he's he's just pissed off at the system. Vince won't let him talk. So when he got that Austin 316 moment, he wrote that himself, right? Like, that was his moment. He didn't have writers back then. And Steve was legitimately pissed. And another part of the Steve Austin story that's really, really fascinating is you'd think all would be great. He's winning. He's the Intercontinental Champion. But remember, at SummerSlam 97, he gets dropped on his head by Owen Hart. Probably should have been paralyzed. They never spoke again which is interesting. And Austin's talked about that. Uh, he said a lot of guys found Owen funny after that. I, I never really did. Owen didn't apologize after the match. And even Brett said my brother was wrong to do that. Uh, so Austin probably should have been paralyzed. I just think that's Austin's got enough old school in him where wrestling, you didn't trust anybody. The click kind of changed that. Because oh, did he, I mean, that was the move they agreed on, though. So Owen Hart obviously right. just messed up the move. Uh, it wasn't intentional at all. But, yeah. But in the business that's based on distrust, Just to clarify on, on of course, people that don't know. Of course. And, but if you don't know what I make and I don't know what you make, and the whole wrestling business is kind of built on promoters kind of working over their talent, right? So here's Austin. He's finally getting this push of his life. He gets hurt. He almost gets paralyzed. Funny story I thought uh, from Austin. He said when they brought him in the back after the match, he somehow, it's the worst cradle of his life, he said. Rolls up Owen Hart, wins the match. They bring him in the back. Oh, it's an embarrassing look. It is. It's like, how the hell are they going to watch? And this match. I don't really recall that when I did watch. And I did watch during that time, but I don't recall being as shocked about it. Like when you watch it on YouTube now, you're like, oh my God, that's the worst ending to a match of all time. And he's thinking in his head, and this is his words, not mine. I'm Christopher Reeves. I'm, I'm paralyzed. That's what he's thinking in his head. So they bring him in the back, and I, lo- I love it because at least he's okay. I mean, I love this story, right? All's well that ends well. Davey Boy Smith, the British Bulldog, British is, telling Bulldog. Him, is telling him, Steve, it was the fucking worst cradle ever. What the fuck are you doing out there? And Austin <laughs> said, you know, my mind's running a million miles an hour. I may never be myself again, right? Like my, my career could be over, and I'm listening to this guy tell me it's a bad fucking cradle. So, you know, he, was, he had a great story about that. But So Austin had a lot of reasons, I think, to be angry, just being overlooked time and time again. And that's why that character worked. Steve, Stone Cold Steve Austin, I know it's a character, but that was him. He was upset with the system. Everything he said to Vince McMahon with that character about breaking through, he meant it. And I think you have to do that. Where with a guy like Roman Reigns, he's so manufactured. Daniel Bryan, a lot more organic. Wrestling, if a wrestling star is organic. Even Hulk Hogan, I know Hulkamania is eons ago, but 1981 in Minnesota, Minneapolis, Minnesota. That's where Hulkamania is born. And that was organic. 
And then Vince obviously taps into it, McMahon, and makes it this larger-than-life phenomenon that three, three decades later, today's the 30-year anniversary of WrestleMania three when Hogan slams Andre. Mm. But that was built in the AWA, and Vince was smart enough to see it and say, I can make that a lot bigger and better and, and run with it. But Pedroia on TV, he initiates conversation with the guy on the other team who injured him, by the way, with what you could call a dirty slide. Spike them. And he says, that's not me, that's him. That's bullshit. That's not me, that's him. He's pointing down his own tunnel. Matt Barnes isn't even in the shower yet. And then Petrolia's calling him out. Petrolia felt the need to initiate this and throw his teammate under the bus. Meanwhile, Barnes is probably watching it going, what the fuck? I'm throwing at Machado because I'm getting the guy's back. He's my teammate. Like, this whole situation to me, I was watching it yesterday at WEEI as I'm about to go on air. And I'm looking up at the TV, and I'm I'm watching the exchange going, I'm confused. Is Pedroia throwing his own teammate under the bus? Like, I just couldn't comprehend what was going on. And I said on the radio, I said, this is a bad look for Pedroia. Now, I'm not sitting there telling you that throwing at somebody's head is the right thing to do. It, could I understand retaliation? Sure. And you should plunk him in the back or plunk him in the ass, and that's it. Not in the head. I'm not saying that throwing at his head was right. And and perhaps there were other players on the Red Sox in that moment that were upset that he went at his head. All right, fine. But there's being upset with it, and then there's doing what Pedroia did, which to me is the most ridiculous thing I've seen. I've never seen this. Pete, have you ever seen a player do that? Have you ever seen a player do that? No, I think Pedroia got a huge man crush on Manny Machado. I don't know what's going on there. but <laughs> It's the only reason that I can come up with. Honestly, it's... I've never seen this. I've seen, look, I, I'm not telling you throwing at someone's head is the right thing to do. But it's not the first time it's happened, and guess what? It won't be the last. So let's not act like throwing at someone's head as much as we think it's not the right thing to do. Let's not act like this is the first time it's ever been done. All right? So... It's one thing to be upset about it if you're Pedroia or anyone else in the Red Sox. It's another thing to express that anger and throw a teammate under the bus right then and there on the field, yelling across the way. Meanwhile, you're only in the dugout in that spot with your hooded sweatshirt on because the guy on the other side injured you. Like, and the guy that you're throwing under the bus is actually the only guy that had your back. Like, if you're Matt Bonds, you're on that mound, and you're going, Petey's my boy, Petey's our guy, Dustin Pedroia's our leader, you're going to take him out, you're going you're gonna to injure our leader like that, guess what, you're not going to get away with it, here you go, bang, I mean, alright, we don't like that he threw it his head, but is it really that crazy that Bonds did that, is it, to the point where Pedroia should throw him under the bus, he's defending Pedroia! I, what doesn't Pedroia understand about this? Oh, this is so stupid. It pisses me off, and it's not over there. It's one, it's one thing if that was it. He doubled down after the game. Pedroia doubled down after the game. Throwing Bonds under the bus. He even went as far to say he loves Manny Machado. We played this on WEEI yesterday. All right? Um, this was post-game... Dustin Pedroia yesterday after he had that exchange with Machado, he doubled down on it after the game. Here it is. 
Yeah, I just told him I, I, I didn't have anything to do with that. That's not, that's not how you, that's not how you do that, man. Uh, sorry to him and his team, you know. If you're, if you're going to protect guys, you do it right away. And he knows that, and, and both teams know that. So, definitely a mishandled situation. He, there was zero intentions of him trying to hurt me. He just made a bad slide and did hurt me. It's baseball, man. I'm not mad at him. I love Manny Machado. Like, pl love playing against him. Love, love watching him. Oh, I mean, if I if I slid into third base and got Manny's knee, I know I'm gonna get drilled. Oh my god, I love Manny Machado. I can, honestly, we played that a couple times. I even said it last night in the air. After I said, I can only take so much of that. I can only listen to that so much. I mean, the guy slid into you over the bag, crushed your knee. You're injured. You got a teammate who had your back. All right, you don't like that he threw at his head. You wanted him to throw at a specific body pot, not his head. And here you are now saying you love Manny Machado, a guy who, by the way, is no angel, who's a punk, all right, who has been involved in these situations before. You want to know the situations he's been in? 2014 against the Oakland Athletics. Josh Donaldson tags Machado, who's going to third. All right, it was a... You know, he slapped it on him because he was trying to make, a, make another throw and get a double play and double someone else up. So he tagged him hard with the glove. Machado kind of tried to get out of the way of it. He fell to the ground. Machado gets up, helmet off, and he throws his hands in the air, and he gets in Donaldson's face. It's like, and Donaldson's like, what are you doing, dude? What? And the bench is clear. It's like, what are you doing? This is in 2014. The, the, either the next game or a couple games later, Oakland retaliated with, by the way, a guy who's now a member of the Red Sox pitching staff, Fernando Abad, throws inside on Machado. Okay, doesn't hit him, throws inside. It was a 10-0 game, threw inside. It's obviously retaliation for acting like a clown and getting in Donaldson's face and overreacting and acting like a punk and trying to be this big, tough guy. So he threw inside on him. And it wasn't high, it was low. Abad threw in on him. Machado, the next pitch, throws his bat out at the third baseman. And don't tell me it was by accident. It was clearly on purpose. Now everybody's like, what are you doing? You're throwing your bat? So the comments after that were like, Machado doesn't respect the game. He's a punk. It all came out. All right? So that's, that's the first thing. So, I mean, if you're asking what the Red Sox pitching staff thinks of Manny Machado, you got Fernando Abad back there. And I'm not saying I, I like Fernando Abad and what he brings to the table for the Red Sox pitching staff at all. But he is there. And there's a certain type of camaraderie with those guys, especially out in the bullpen. You think Bonds, Abad, and those guys weren't talking? Heck, when you saw on Friday night, Joe Kelly was on the mound as Machado slid into Pedroia's knee. Go watch Joe Kelly's reaction. Joe Kelly got his hands up. He goes, come on, Manny. Are you serious? Kelly was going nuts. He goes, what the fuck, Manny? Joe Kelly's soft as puppy shit. <laughs> like, I mean, he's not a tough dude. And he's pissed off about it. At the end of that clip, Pedroia even says, if Manny slid into me, I would expect to get hit. Yeah, but Pedroia was upset with throwing at the head. And but okay, fine. I can understand that. I'm not, I'm, I'm not saying I'm happy that he threw at his head. But at the same time, you can be unhappy with that and not throw your teammate under the bus on camera and then do it again in the post game. He goes, yeah, you know what? We should have retaliated right away. I get news for you. Matt Bonds didn't pitch on Saturday. Excuse me. Yeah, he didn't pitch on Saturday. He pitched on Sunday. And when Bonds is on that mound on Sunday, you know what? Their bullpen's probably back there going, we haven't hit this kid yet. It's 6 nothing. He took out Pedroia. Pedroia's our guy. You know they're having that conversation. He did, did, 
They're coming out with one purpose. We're defending our guy. And you know what Pedroia did in that moment? He did everything but defend his guy. And that's fucking bullshit, okay? It's bullshit. And that's why I say something that no one else is going to say. And that's fuck Dustin Pedroia. You know how I feel about all this shit? It's like, let me get back to the game. Can I get back to enjoying a game? Can we enjoy games anymore? People knock me, they're like, oh, Picard, he only talks about the games. Because I fucking enjoy the games, right? And this right here, what I do, I don't even, I don't, I do, this is therapy for me right now, you know? This isn't even, I don't even want to do this anymore. I don't fucking want this. This is therapy for me. I come in here, and I see that Remy stuff. Pete, I'm pacing around my house last night going, why can't we just record the podcast tonight? Because I got to get some things off my chest, or I'm going to jump out the fucking window. Right? I mean, this, yeah. yeah. I see you commit every day. Yeah. Pacing. Yeah. You know, whether it's Dunkin' Donuts (laughs) rants, because that's it. I mean, that's, here's my life. Between Duncan's and the Red Sox, dude, I don't know if you got much time. <laughs> I, just, can, can they let me enjoy a fucking game anymore? Can you let me enjoy the game? Just one, just let me enjoy one game. That's it. Because you got people at the fucking walk-up window at Dunkin' Donuts. The drive-through is. I mean, come, what are we doing at the drive-through now? I can't even go to the drive-through anymore, Pete, without getting in a fight with someone. Do you know how many times I'm yelling out the window, ready to fucking roll around with someone at 8 in the morning? Because of the Dunkin' Donuts drive-thru? I don't want to do this and neither do you, so why are we doing it? So this is why I do this. This is therapeutic for me. This is good. Good, get it out. It's uh, coming out. Get it out. Keep subscribing, keep downloading. There's more. The list goes on. It's all going to come out. And the more we do this stupid shit with uh, making Remy apologize or getting upset with Brady and best buddies. Or what else? Or the, uh, David Price has to talk to us every day. He's got to talk every day. If David Price doesn't talk to us today, I don't know what we're going to do. That's bullshit. Here's what I want from David Price. Go on and give me eight innings tonight and let me enjoy a fucking game. Anybody that said, well, Kyrie Irving could get traded to the Celtics, so the Celtics should try to trade for Kyrie Irving, I told you you're nuts. I told you you're nuts. Well, I'm here today on Wednesday, August 23rd, to tell you that I apologize for calling you nuts, and I was wrong, and uh, I guess it turns out it was realistic that the Celtics could acquire Kyrie Irving. And, And I said that before, that the Celtics should just be a third team in to help Kyrie leave Cleveland and go to another team. I said that not because I didn't like Kyrie Irving. I mean, if you don't like Kyrie Irving, the player, then I don't know what, I honestly don't know what sport you're watching. I don't know what game you're paying attention to because it's obviously not the NBA and it's obviously not the sport of basketball. Kyrie Irving is an absolute fucking stud. And um, I guess that brings me into my thoughts on this actual trade now that it's happened. But I just wanted to, get this out of the way, that I never thought this would happen. In fact, the advice that I was given the Celtics, because I never thought it would happen, the advice I was giving them was, you know what? Get involved, but get involved by trying to be the third team in on a trade that would help Cleveland get rid of Kyrie and send him somewhere else, and that essentially would help the Celtics be able to beat Cleveland in the Eastern Conference Finals. So uh, I was wrong. Turns out, here we are. 
on Wednesday, August 23rd, and Kyrie Irving is a member of the Boston Celtics, and here's the trade. The Celtics get Kyrie Irving. The Cavaliers, they get Isaiah Thomas, Jay Crowder, Ante Zizic, and the 2018 Brooklyn pick, which if you had to put money on what that pick's going to be, it's going to be a top three pick. It could be number one overall. It's unprotected. I actually think if you're the Cavaliers, all right, you get Isaiah Thomas, and he. this is the last year of his deal. You know, he's got the hip thing going on, the hip ailment. I, I don't know just how much that's going to affect his game this season. I have no idea. But, you know, he was third in the league in scoring last year. You know, I'm a huge Isaiah Thomas fan. I'll get in, again, I'll get into him in just a second. Um, you get Isaiah Thomas. You get Jay Crowder. I think that's a player that, that the Cavaliers have kind of wanted the last couple seasons to be, you know, the defensive presence that, you know, they would love to have on their team. And, uh, and the Brooklyn pick. All right. The players, Isaiah Thomas, Crowder, they help Cleveland compete right now. And in fact, if I had a pick, I'd say that the Cavaliers, I'd pick them to go to the NBA Finals again. I would, given how they look right now. But I still think that the 2018 Brooklyn pick, knowing that they're going to lose LeBron, they might even lose Isaiah Thomas after this season. To me, if you're Cleveland... And y'all thinking of this thing, big picture, long term, I think the biggest part of this deal for the Cavaliers is that 2018 Brooklyn pick because that, I think, is going to be number one overall. So, uh, look, it's it's a good move for the Cavaliers based on the fact that Kyrie wanted out, based on the fact that they know LeBron's leaving. If you can make a move to also, you know, give you one last shot to win it this year, win it all this year, and get possibly next year's number one overall pick. That, to me, is a very good deal for the Cavaliers. And from a Celtics perspective, and I know that most of my audience is really Boston-based or, or you only really care about my, my Boston Celtics take on this trade. I tweeted it last night. I mean, when this trade went down, we were playing street hockey at Gavi Park in Dorchester. We were having a, we were having a roller hockey game. Um... <laughs> And uh, we were playing for a good two hours, two and a half hours. And, and when the game's over, we're all, you know, taking our rollerblades off. And somebody pulls out their phone and, and they say, oh, the Celtics just traded for Kyrie Irving. And I'm going, get the fuck out of here. Come on. Like, I just didn't think it was realistic. And then, of course, you open up your phone, you see what's going on. I needed a, I needed a couple minutes to process it. I'm not going to lie. So I didn't tweet about it right away, and people would tweet me. They're like, oh, I can't wait to, to hear what Danny thinks about this trade. Um, and, and I just I, I had to take a couple moments to, to take it all in. Like, was this real? Is this a real-life trade that went down? It seems sort of like a, a video game trade. It seems like a trade you would make in NBA 2K17 on your PS4, right? This is That's the type of deal this felt like at the time. So, um... You know, the deal gets done, and I know you care about my take, and I tweeted it last night, that while I am one of Isaiah Thomas's biggest fans, okay, I'm one, of, I'm one of IT's biggest fans. You know that if you listen to the show or if you follow me on Twitter. I'm one of Isaiah Thomas's biggest fans. And uh, I thought that he deserved to get a max contract. 
with the Celtics. I honestly thought that. I thought that he had a an argument to 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 get it. I thought that he was based on the nickname I gave him. The reason the Celtics acquired Gordon Haywood, the reason they acquired Al Horford, and Isaiah Thomas was the reason that the Celtics uh, were relevant, have been relevant the last couple of years. In the playoffs, in the Eastern Conference Finals last year, Isaiah Thomas is the reason for all that. Third in the league in scoring, you'd be hard-pressed to find somebody else out there who is a bigger Isaiah Thomas fan than me. All right? That said, if you tell me you can get Kyrie Irving at 25 years old, three years younger than Isaiah Thomas, a Kyrie Irving who's 25 years old, who's under contract for two more seasons, and also with the player option on a third, all right? You can tell me you can get that player. And this is the package, trading away an Isaiah Thomas, as much as I love him, on the last year of his deal. He's got the hip issue. The question with that, um, Jay Crowder, Zizic, who, let's be honest, Zizic wasn't going to see the light of day in, in, on the Celtics court. And the 2018 Brooklyn pick, I look at this deal from a Celtics perspective, and I'm telling you right now, this is a trade that you, if you're Danny Ainge, you got to make this trade. you got to make this trade. It's a business at the end of the day. And in the business of not just winning now and having a chance to win in the future, but also in the business of contract-related stuff um, and having all these picks and trying to put some value on some of these picks rather than just taking a player and hope he pans out, the, the time was right. The timing was right. I think the value was right. And I think the player you're getting in return, the player the Celtics are getting in return in Kyrie Irving is an absolute stud, is an all-star. And if you watched the NBA Finals a couple years ago in which Cleveland beat Golden State, Kyrie Irving was an absolute street beast. You cannot deny the talent this kid has. All right? Shot 40% from the three-point line last year. Had a career-high 25 points a game. What's that? Three, a little more than, uh, excuse me, a little less than, uh, and then Isaiah Thomas had per game. Isaiah Thomas had 28.9 points per game last year, which was third in the league. Kyrie Irving averaged 25.2. All right. Irving is a stud, and he can shoot from the outside. You've seen him. We've seen him. He's one of the best finishes around the rim. And again, he's three years younger than Isaiah Thomas. And he's under contract for an extra year, possibly two, two more extra years than Isaiah Thomas. So if you weren't going to give IT a max contract, if you had questions about the hip and the fact that he's 28 years old, Isaiah Thomas going to turn 29 in February, if you weren't going to give him the max deal, it seems even more obvious to make a move to get an all-star elite stud point guard who's three years younger and has more years left on his current contract. It just seems kind of like a no-brainer. And this is coming from somebody that loves Isaiah Thomas. Floyd Mayweather versus Conor McGregor. Did you watch it? I know I did. Did you pay the money? I know I did. 100 bucks to get a fight that, let's be honest, I I think this was so intriguing because... We can make all the predictions that we want. 
nobody really knew what the fuck was going to happen in this fight, right? Nobody knew. Conor McGregor is coming from the UFC. Uh, he is a, he's going to go down as a UFC legend, Conor McGregor. And you had Floyd Mayweather, 49 and all. Had, has never lost a fight. Going for a 50 and 0 record. So much money on the line. The promotion for this fight was silly. It was so over the top. It was just insane. Some of the things that were said by both sides. I mean, look, this was a circus. It was. But the main event of the circus, we had no idea what was going to happen. We had no clue. We can make all the predictions that we want. We had no idea what was going to go down. And when they stepped into the ring on Saturday night in Las Vegas, when they stepped into the ring Saturday night in Las Vegas, the end result was Floyd Mayweather wins the fight in the 10th round by way of TKO. The ref jumped in and stopped the fight. Mayweather was going to knock McGregor out. He was hitting him with punches. And really, the story of the fight was fatigue. That's what it was. It was fatigue. Conor McGregor, and I told you this, I told you this since the first day that they announced this fight. I said Floyd Mayweather is known for going deep into fights, right? He's known for going deep into fights. Conor McGregor in the UFC does not, you know, when he does go deep, it's only, what, five rounds. But most of his fights are ended early, too. So McGregor never goes that, you know, never fights as long as Floyd Mayweather. So when it comes to energy and fatigue, I told you going in, if Floyd Mayweather can extend this thing into the sixth, seventh, eighth round, Conor McGregor is going to be toast. And that's exactly what he was. I thought Conor McGregor was, was done a lot earlier than maybe the announcing team thought. I thought McGregor, and by the way, credit where credit's due, Conor McGregor, Earned a lot of respect from the boxing world in that fight. He did. But let's be fair. With regards to Mayweather's strategy, his strategy looked as if, you know, he knew that this thing needed to be extended. And Mayweather knew that McGregor was going to be toast in the 6th, 7th, 8th round. He knew that. And I think that was his goal. And when he got there, I mean, it was obvious. He knew. He saw the green light. And I think he saw the green light starting around you know, round three or round four, McGregor was getting a little light. You know, he, he was he was getting a little lightheaded, it looked like. You could tell. I could tell in round four. But McGregor, earning the respect, I think he won the first couple rounds, first two rounds. But that said, as it went on, McGregor was toast. Fatigue kicked in. He just didn't have it. And Mayweather was going to knock him out. The ref stopped the fight. And... In fact, McGregor makes it sound like he was upset that the ref stopped the fight. He was saying, that, you know, the ref should have you know, let him beat him, let him knock him to the mat. I think Mayweather should be upset because Mayweather was going to put him to the canvas. And what the ref did was he saved Conor McGregor the embarrassment of all of us having that video image or that, you know, that video footage or that image of McGregor being knocked out cold. The ref saved McGregor. From that embarrassment. If I'm Mayweather, I'm going, why'd you got to stop the fight? You knew I was going to knock this fucking dude out. Let me knock him out. Let me make that statement. I would have been kind of pissed if I were Mayweather. McGregor, was he using it 
as an excuse after, huh? or was he using it to to already begin the buildup for a rematch? I'll I'll get into that. I'll, I'll get into my thoughts on a potential rematch. But first and foremost, looking at the fight Saturday night, I told you that it was possible Mayweather knocks him out because McGregor would be fatigued. I told you Mayweather. My my ultimate prediction was Mayweather would win in a decision that McGregor and Dana White would find somewhat controversial. Didn't necessarily play out like that. This was not controversial, though Conor McGregor did say some things about the ref stopping the fight too early. But again, I told you, I just told you, did the ref stop the fight a little too early? Yeah, I guess. But we all knew what was going to happen at that point. McGregor was done, and we knew that he was going to get knocked out. He was going to get knocked out right there in that moment. So, if anything, the ref just prevented the embarrassment for McGregor of actually getting knocked out. But Mayweather won the fight. I think it was uh, it was a fair fight. It was an exciting fight. I think it was a good night for the fight game. And you got a couple guys getting extremely rich off it at the same time. Because they both got extremely rich off it, they can say whatever they want in the aftermath about Mayweather saying he's retired at 50 and all. Dana White saying McGregor's going to go back to UFC. McGregor even hinted in one of his post-fight press conferences that he's got two titles to defend in UFC. All right, that's all fine. It's all well and good. But guess what? When you look at the type of money that these two made, when you look at the fact that McGregor didn't get his ass kicked in the first four or five rounds and that this was actually a fight, I mean, McGregor landed. McGregor was landed some punches. He was landed punches early. He landed that uppercut. I mean, look, McGregor did a lot better than I thought he was going to do in the early rounds. He did. I think he did a lot better than a lot of people thought he was going to do in the early rounds. But um, the fact that he didn't get his ass kicked in the first couple of rounds, I think that plays into the interest in a rematch. And I do think there would be enough interest there where these guys would make enough money where they would at least think about it. They have to think about it. Are you kidding me? A rematch? I don't know. Maybe you throw McGregor in there with somebody who is not Floyd Mayweather and you you get him some reps in the ring and, you know, you build the stamina a little bit. I don't know. But let me ask you this. If they told you they were having a rematch based on McGregor's performance, based on the fact that he didn't get his ass kicked in the first four or five rounds, held his own, not just held his own, but even won a couple rounds against Floyd Mayweather in his boxing debut, in McGregor's boxing debut. Seeing that, knowing that, you mean to tell me you wouldn't be interested in a rematch? I would be. I'd watch it. I'd pay again. I'd put it up. And so would everybody else. You can laugh at the idea of a rematch all you want. But here's who won't be laughing at the idea of a rematch. Conor McGregor and Floyd Mayweather. You know why? Because there is just too much money to pass up. And, and one thing that I've learned about these guys, both Mayweather and McGregor, over the years, is that they care more about the money game than the fight game. They do. They care more about the money game than the fight game. And if you're telling me there's still money to be made, which there is, I think they would be crazy to to go separate ways right now. They'd be crazy to do that. Now, it would be a little bit more of a risk for McGregor to have some type of other fight to build his stamina in between. 
Because what happens if he gets caught with one? He loses, right? What if, if he loses to some schmuck in the ring? Who's the guy he was training with? Malignani or whatever his fucking name is. I, I don't even know how to, whoever. He was the, one of the color commentators for the fight. He was terrible. He needs to, he doesn't, I can't even hear what he's saying or understand what he's saying. They would, there was a thing that said that, oh, maybe McGregor would fight him in the ring. But what happens if the guy catches McGregor with one? I just think the risk is too much. Don't even do that. If you're going to have a rematch, have it right. Don't have any other fights. Get right to it. We'll see you in March in Las Vegas. You want to extend it? Say, we'll do it next summer? Do it next summer. There's a lot of money to be had there for a rematch. There is. There is. And I think there's too much money to be had for them to pass it up. I think they'd be foolish to run away from that. I do. I mean, you know... It's entertainment. We were entertained Saturday night. Were we not? If you were not entertained Saturday night, then I don't know what you do to find entertainment. But to me, that was entertaining. It was exciting. It was intriguing. And McGregor provided enough for me to be excited and intrigued about a rematch. I'd watch. I'd pay. I'd be interested. I'd be intrigued. And a lot of other people would too. And because a lot of other people would too, I, I'm telling you right now, this is my opinion. They're gonna, there's, there will be a rematch. They will fight again. These two guys will fight again. They will. And it might be the same result. I have no idea. But they'll do it again and they'll make more money. All right? And maybe, just maybe, that's the one where maybe McGregor does catch him with one early. If Mayweather's a year older. And maybe then you see a trilogy and there's even more money made. I'm just telling you right now, don't laugh at the idea of a rematch with Mayweather McGregor. Don't laugh at it. I don't care what they say right now. I don't care what Dana White says. I don't care what Mayweather, what McGregor says. I don't care what they say. Here's what I know. Here's what I know they think. What I know they want is more money. And if there's more money to be had here, and there is, they'll have a rematch. There's going to be a rematch. I'm telling you right now, the fact that McGregor was talking about the ref jumping in too early, it sounds sort of like an excuse. Um, that's what that's what they'll use to build it. Hey, you didn't knock me out. There's no video of you putting me down to the canvas. I didn't touch the floor once. Right? You didn't knock me out. There's no video or picture of that. The ref stepped in and saved you. For all you know, I was going to you know, I was going to grab you. I was going to hold you. I was going to stand my ground for the next couple rounds, get some energy back, and then knock you out in the 11th or the 12th round. Right? That's, that's how they'll build it. And they, will, they can do it. They can do it. People will buy in. I will buy in. I will watch again. There will be a rematch. That's my prediction. That's my opinion. But I'm sticking to it. I do think... That if you're going to get worked up about anything at all, more than getting worked up about game four, you should get worked up about games one and two. Because the Red Sox, let's face it, they lost this series in Houston. They did. They lost in Houston. Because the bottom line is this. The Red Sox best pitches were their worst players in the postseason. They were. Their, their best pitches were the worst players in the postseason. And it began in Houston. And I really think, even though you, you came home in one game three, 
you know, you lost the series in Houston in a in a best of five series. If you lose the first two on the road and you lose it like that, like I would have, I'd be able to maybe deal with this series a lot better if Chris Sale gave you seven innings of one run ball in game one and you lost a close one late. And it's one of those, again, like yesterday, I think, you tip your cap to the Astros and say, heck of a game. You can't do that in game one because Chris Sale, uh, you know, the line is seven earned runs in five innings, in five-plus innings, right? Seven earned runs in five innings. So, I mean, that's no good. Now, I get it that Joe Kelly came in and let up a hit, and so those runs were given to Chris Sales, but, but still, take that away. Take the Joe Kelly performance out of the way in that game one. Chris Sale, through the first five innings, through five innings, let up three home runs in five runs. He let up back-to-back home runs in the first inning. On the road, game one, you're asking for Chris Sale, your ace. Really, the main reason that you acquired Chris Sale was for that start in game one. Not just to get you to the postseason, but when you did get there, make sure that you had a better rotation than you did last year against Cleveland in the ALDS. Chris Sale, that start in game one, that was the, that was the reason why you acquired him. But he couldn't get the job done. And that was, a, that was an awful performance by, by the ace of the Red Sox. It, it was. It was a terrible performance. And so that was just, it's tough to stomach even thinking about it again right now. And the last time you heard from me on this podcast, which was last Friday, last Friday morning, the day after game one, before game two was played, I told you that Chris Sale was to blame for game one. And that's really it. He was. I I think that's it. People wanted to put it on the manager. I I wasn't going to put game one on the manager. Game one was on Chris Sale. Now, I think the manager made a lot of mistakes just just some terrible decisions from John Farrell in this series. I'll get to those. I'll get to where we stand with John Farrell in a moment. But going back as to really the main reason, when we're going through the blame, right? We're pointing the finger at people. Why did the Red Sox lose this series? Why did they lose it in four games? Then, well, the reason is they lost it in Houston because their best pitches were their worst players in the postseason. It began in game one with Sale. It continued in game two with Drew Pomeranz. Drew Pomeranz, he let up his second home run of the game before he could even get one out in the third inning. He gave you two plus innings, allowed four earned runs. There was a short leash on him. It was a quick hook to Pomeranz. And, um, you know, there was some things in that game. Like, I don't understand Carson Smith in game two, but, but David Price came in, and I thought Price was phenomenal. I mean, David Price... Really, he was the one guy on this team that I trusted more than anybody else. And who would have thought we'd be saying that about David Price in the postseason? But that's the reality of it. Drew Pomeranz, one of the team's better pitch, one of the best pitchers on the team all year, sucked in game two. So Sale and Pomeranz, they were horrible. And when those guys let up a combined 11 earned runs in the first two games on the road against this Houston Astros team, you're not going to win that series. You're not. It's just not going to happen. Because game three, you had to start Doug Fister. And Doug Fister was no good, all right? But that you had to. You weren't going to start Rick Porcello. Now, credit with credit's due to Rick Porcello. You know, I guess a tip of the cap to him. You look at game four yesterday. Uh, what he threw? Seven, 70 pitches 
Porcello threw 70 pitches in three innings and allowed a couple runs. He just he didn't let up a home run, which I guess is the big win there because he got lit up by Houston earlier in the season. It just, Rick Porcello, we're praising him for a, think about this, we're praising Rick Porcello for a three-inning performance. Now, I think that says a lot about his regular season. He let up 38 home runs in the regular season, so the fact that he didn't let up any in three innings against this Houston team that was launching him the, the first three games, well, you know, that again, it just says more about Porcello and how bad his regular season was. It also shows you just how bad the other starting pitches in the series for the Red Sox were. And Sale, Pomeranz, and Fister. Now, you found a way to win game three. And you did it with the home run from Devers. That was the biggest hit. Game three, they win game three. And I know you're talking about Mookie Betts' catch in right field. We robs Reddick. Right? That was the thing people are saying. It really turned it around. But I'm sorry. Without Rafael Devers' home run to put the Red Sox up 4-3 in that game three, that was the big hit that we were begging them. That was the the, the biggest hit, really the biggest hit of the series was for the Red Sox, was Rafael Devers' home run in game three because we were begging this team to take to take one deep. Right? And he did. And he did. And he did it against the lefty. He did it against the lefty, right? So, I mean, Rafael Devers, 20 years old. So, that was, Rafael Devers was the reason. David Price had a great performance in game three. Mookie Betts made a great catch. Hanley had a nice day. But without Devers' home run, you don't win that game. You get swept. Devers was the reason, I think number one reason, you forced the game four. And, um... Unfortunately, in game four, once again, two of your best pitches blew it for you. Sale and Kimbrell. <laughs> so, I mean, that's the bottom line here. And when you're pointing the finger and we want to say who's the most to blame for the Red Sox losing this series, who's the most to blame for the Red Sox not even forcing a game five, your best pitches, the Boston Red Sox best pitches were their worst players in the postseason. They were. And, and, and. I think it began in Houston, but I also think that's where it ended. They lost the series in Houston. And I'm not trying to ignore what happened yesterday late in the game. But I just think that, in my opinion, you played it the right way. You did. You played it the right way. Like, there, was, there were people that were tweeting me saying, oh, you can't put sale in the game because it's going to rain out. And I responded, you know, hey, with all due respect to meteorologists everywhere, if you're a Red Sox fan right now and you want the Red Sox to manage this game and manage this pitching staff and make in-game decisions based on weather forecasts, you're either drunk or you're a fucking psychopath. Really. So, uh, I did not want to... Well, it did say it was going to rain. Guess what? If you put your money on the weatherman, then you lost a lot of money because the weatherman were wrong once again. Um, no shit, Right. And and it didn't. We didn't get the downpour at like three thirty in the fifth and the sixth inning that people said we were gonna get, in which they would have to maybe take this game and finish it today. Like that's not what happened. If you put your money on the weatherman, you lost. And the last thing I wanted the Red Sox to do was put their money on the weatherman and hold off on bringing Chris Sale in. When they did, he was phenomenal. You can sit all you want. You could say you could have said it at the time. There were people saying it at the time. Tweet me at the time, going, he can't come out for the eighth. He's done. I didn't think he was done. In fact, I thought he was done, you know, in, in game one. 
he was I don't think he I didn't think he was done going in the eighth. But you know what? He was he's your guy. Sale Kimbrell. I don't want to see Reed. You kidding me? No, you lost with your best pitches being the team's worst players and, and making the biggest mistakes. That's it. That's it. That's what this comes down to. Sale needed to be your ace in game one. And Pomeranz needed to be your 1A, the 1A that he was most of the season with 17 wins, and he wasn't. And even Kimbrell, even though, you know, Bregman hit the home run off Sale in game four, you needed Kimbrell to go out there and, and still, in the, you know, in the ninth, make sure that this, that this didn't get out of hand. And then it got out of hand. That extra run was out of hand because it was enough for the Astros to win even after Rafael Devers inside the park home run. So uh, the Red Sox season is over. And I guess my, my little side rant, I get a little like, you call this a sidebar. Like that was the, I just gave it a game story and the overall, you know, bottom line of this series. But if you wanted me to write a little sidebar piece and, and just something that I need to rant on that, that, you know, throughout all of baseball, like the, what's the, what's the popular thing in, in major league baseball from an analyst perspective, from a fan perspective, from uh, from a Twitter perspective, what is the what's the number one thing? Like the thing that everybody's saying, middle relief. It's like, oh, you you gotta have the dominant middle relief. You know, uh, the thing now in Major League Baseball is having that guy come in early on in the game, give you three or four innings. The Andrew Miller effect from last year's postseason, right? Right. Sort of the ballsy. We're gonna go to this top dog now. We're gonna go to him early. We're gonna bring the big name in early. He's gonna give us multiple innings because we're not playing any fucking games here. And everybody wants everybody to do that. And I know you saw Price do it, and he was great. And that you know, given the circumstances where he couldn't be in the rotation, or at least I don't think they should have put him in because he wasn't a routine. He was looking good. He did have the elbow injury. I think he had to stay in the bullpen, and he, he was great. Again, Price was the guy I trusted the most throughout the postseason for this team. But he was great. Sale was great for the most part yesterday in Game 4 coming out of the pen. But, but here's a little side rant to all of it. Is that I just want to let people know. I want to remind people that all of this dominant relief pitching from big money starters coming out of the pen in the middle of the game, all that's nice. Like, that's, that's nice. It's nice to see. Gives you a good feeling. And in the moment, it's, you feel great about it. It's nice. Don't get me wrong. It's nice. But let me remind everybody, the traditional way still works. That still works. Like, a starting pitcher going seven innings, that still works. In fact, in my opinion... That is the ideal way to still do things. So I know there's a fad. I know people want this to stick. There are people out there. I mean, there are people who cover Major League Baseball for a living. For national companies like ESPN, CBS, uh, Fox. There are people who have full-time jobs, who have one job. That's to analyze Major League Baseball during the postseason. Okay? And there were more than one of these national media members. There were local as well. There are people who took this fad, who took this, uh, shall we call it, 
this obsession with wanting to see the big name reliever come in earlier than he's used to, or this starting pitcher, and put him in a role that that you know he's coming out of the bullpen instead of staying in the rotation and and you know risking not being able to start him in the next game because you just want to win now and you want to win early in this game or keep it close. There are people who are obsessed with this trend in the in the bullpen that. I read stories where people wanted to see Craig Kimbrell start a game for the Red Sox. And they was dead serious. That's insane. People have lost their minds with it, I think. And I remember last year when Andrew Miller was coming in, pitching multiple innings, and he came in a lot earlier than, than he was used to. And people said, oh, this is going to stick. People are going to want to do this. And you know what? Again, there were moments in this Red Sox series where they did some things out of the bullpen that seemingly worked for them that was similar to that Andrew Miller situation. However, I need to remind everybody that while those things did work, that's not the ideal situation. It's not. So my message to people who love that trend, who are fascinated by it, who want to see it continue so much so that they're willing to write stories in which they think that it's going to come to the point where a closer should come to a postseason game and make a start. I got a message for you people. The traditional way still works. It still works. Ask the Yankees last night on Monday night who got Luis Severino to give him seven innings. Ask them. Ask the Dodgers last night who swept the Diamondbacks. Ask them. They get you, Davish to go what through five innings. Um, you know, ask the Cubs, ask the Cubs, ask the Nationals, who had Scherzer go deep. I know Nationals lost, but still, you got a 2-1 game last night. The traditional way still works, all right? So as we enter this offseason, I'm telling you right now, the last thing that I want to hear is... It's just crazy ideas with the pitching staff where you should set it up in a way in which (laughs) relief pitches should be continuously coming out of the pen in big spots early on in games. In a series like that where you had to do it and the fact that where you had to do it, it's great to see the guys get the job done, fine. But that's not ideal. There are people who took those moments, who are taking those moments, and are trying to tell us that that is now not only the trend, but the new traditional way of doing things in the Major League Baseball postseason. These people telling you that are fucking idiots, okay? That's not the traditional way. The traditional way is, and the Red Sox, I'm convinced, would be at least playing a game five tomorrow if they did things the traditional way, which is Chris Sale gives you seven or seven plus innings in game one, right? Of only one, maybe two run ball. Drew Pomeranz gives you six and two thirds, maybe seven innings of one or two run ball in game two. You do those things the first two games, this might be a completely different series. It might be, but you didn't do it the traditional way because your starting pitching sucked. So while there's an obsession and there's a fascination and people are obsessed with this, I, this idea, the love fest of the guys coming out of a pen, stop it. I, my, my side rant to all of this is that while it, you know, you get some nice performances out of the pen, 
the traditional way still works. All right? It does. It still works. And I would prefer that method. I would prefer that Chris Sale helped them to a win in game one. I would have preferred that Drew Pomeranz made it longer than two innings in game two. If you do those things, you don't really have to then get the four innings of work from Chris Sale in game four, do you? No. And I think we'd all, at least I should hope that we, most of us at the end of the day would prefer the same thing. That everybody else would prefer that as well. And that the Red Sox would prefer that. It's just, it's something that pisses me off because they don't, people don't, they're not talking about this bullpen stuff like it, like it has to be done because the starting pitching sucked and that's a problem at the end of the day. They're talking about it like, well, this is just the way it, it happens now. And not only do you have to accept it, but this is probably the way they should plan it. They should start pitches in games who aren't very good and save their better pitches for the middle innings. Like, what? That's dumb. That's not the traditional way, and it will never be the traditional way. The traditional way is to get your best pitches, your starting pitches, to show up and to give you six or seven innings to begin the game. Then you worry about the bullpen. Okay? The Red Sox didn't do that. Sale didn't show up. Pomeranz didn't show up in Houston, in those first two games, and ultimately, that's why the Red Sox season is over. Jimmy Garoppolo on Monday night was traded to the San Francisco 49ers, and here's the trade. The Patriots send Garoppolo to the 49ers for a second-round pick in the 2018 draft, the upcoming NFL draft, and for people who don't know how the NFL draft works, It doesn't work like your own little fantasy football draft. It doesn't wrap back around. You know, the the team that picks last in the first round doesn't get to pick again first in the second round, right? It doesn't wrap around like your little fantasy football draft. So um, basically, seeing what San Francisco is, which is one of two winless teams in the NFL at 0-8, uh, and the other team is Cleveland. Cleveland has a bye this week. San Francisco is, what are they, at home against Arizona? Is, is that what they're at? Uh, is that what they're doing this week? That was San Francisco at? Either way, San Francisco is 0-8. And, it, you know, they don't look good. So the pick that you get, a second-round pick, it very well could be, what, 33 or 34 overall which will be one of the early picks in the second round. So it's a very good draft pick that you're getting from San Francisco, and that's the trade. Garoppolo to San Fran, and the Patriots get a second-round pick from the 49ers in the 2018 NFL Draft. It should be noted that the man who reported this trade on Monday night, who reported it first before anybody else, was ESPN's Adam Schefter. And what have I been yelling and screaming about to you since what, like all off season, all the the past NFL off season. What did I since the beginning of of March? What have I been yelling and screaming to you? I've been yelling and screaming that Adam Schefter is gonna break the Jimmy Garoppolo trade. He is. That's what I've been telling you. And why did I say that? Because Adam Schefter was the guy that continued to yell and scream about how Jimmy Garoppolo wasn't getting traded. I mean, he was pounding his chest. He was doubling down. He was going on TV, radio. He was yelling at people. He was saying, what, you don't, you don't believe me? You don't trust me? 
He sounded like a guy that knew that had inside information coming from the New England Patriots. And he was so confident and he was yelling so loud and proud about it that there were a lot of people that looked at Adam Schefter and said, wow, we believe him. Jimmy Garoppolo's not getting traded, right? It was just, it was a little weird to see a reporter like that take, take it so personal to the point where when people questioned him, when people questioned Schefter, he took it so personal, he got upset, visibly upset on TV as he held all eight of his Blackberries or iPhones or whatever the fuck he uses. He's got way too many phones. Um, or when he goes on radio shows and, and radio stations, he's, people get mad at him, they question him. And he gets mad back at him. Adam Schefter took it personal to the point where a lot of people said, you know what, I guess he's got to know something. He, he's got to know something. Adam Schefter is great at what he does, no question about it. And when he got that upset with people questioning him about Jimmy Garoppolo and how uh, Schefter said he's not getting traded, no way, no how, you know, when, when he got mad at that, people said, this guy knows what he's doing. He's great at what he does. There's no way he would be getting this mad if it wasn't true. So, um, you had Adam Schefter doing that. But I, on this show, and I don't, was I one of the only people out there that was doing this? I have no idea. But I, on this show, have told you many times that Adam Schefter, at the end of the day, I think is full of shit because I think he is helping pump up the trade value for the Patriots. Whether Schefter knew he was doing that or not, I just always told you that if Jimmy Garoppolo does get traded, Adam Schefter will be the first person to report it because that either will be part of the deal or, you know, the Patriots will acknowledge that this is the guy maybe they gave, purposely gave some false information to so they feel the need to... to Make up for it by, well, you know what? We changed our minds. We're going to trade Garoppolo. We kind of made you look like a fool. We're going to let you break it first. However it went down, I sat here and told you many times going back to the offseason that when Adam Schefter got all upset and got his panties in a bunch and people questioned him, I I didn't sit here and say, no, I think Garoppolo is going to be here for the long haul. I sat here and told you that all this tells me is that Adam Schefter will be the guy that breaks the news when Garoppolo gets traded. Why did I say that? Because trading Garoppolo just makes way too much sense. It does. It does. It makes way too much sense. So I tweeted out on Monday night. I said, the Patriots just traded a backup quarterback, a soon-to-be free agent backup quarterback, for a second-round pick. A second-round pick. Think of that. Think of this trade. Think of the shell of this trade. Don't get into the details. Think of the shell of this trade. And what is the shell of this trade? The shell is a backup QB in a contract year, a backup quarterback. Let me keep saying that. A backup quarterback in a contract year just got traded for a second-round pick. And again, to one of the worst teams in the league, which means that that second-round pick is borderline a late first-round pick, if that's really the way you want to value it. And we know the Patriots value things that way. So that's the shell. A backup QB in a contract year gets traded for a second-round draft pick. When you go into the details, here are the details. The New England Patriots traded Tom Brady's backup. Okay? They traded Tom Brady's backup. A guy who wanted to start somewhere before he either walked for a compensation third-round pick this offseason or got paid $23 million 
next season under the franchise tag for a quarterback as a backup quarterback. And instead, the Patriots got a second round second round pick for it. Those are the details from the San Francisco 49ers. Look, it's okay to like this trade from a Patriots perspective and still think Garoppolo is going to be a very good quarterback. I had so many just idiotic responses on Twitter when I tweeted on Monday night that I think this is a very good trade for the Patriots. They did a nice job with this. Um, given the circumstances. You have to look at the circumstances. You have to look at the situation at hand. You can't just look at what you think Garoppolo's going to be and say, well, they should have got more for him. He's going to be a franchise quarterback. He's only 25, 26 years old. They should have got more from him. You can't do that. That, that. That's stupid. You have to look at all the factors involved. And maybe the biggest factor of them all, which is why I always thought a trade would go down. It's why I always thought a trade, trading Garoppolo made more sense than not trading Garoppolo, is that Garoppolo wants to play. He wants to play. And if you're the Patriots, are you moving Tom Brady right now? And and forget about just the Patriots. If you're a Patriots fan, do you really want to move on from Tom Brady right now? I don't get it. Why would you want to do that? Patriots are uh, 6-2 and two on the bye week. Um, they very well could and probably should have a first-round bye this year in the playoffs. And they're going to be making a run for another Super Bowl. And given the way Tom Brady's played so far, even with all the hits he's been taking, even without Julian Edelman, even with some offensive players banged up, what, you don't like the job Tom Brady's doing? You keep looking at the guy's age. And I understand that the number 40 can be a scary number, especially in professional sports, where everybody always likes to talk about how father time is undefeated. Okay, father time is undefeated. But but when does that time come? Like, wh- it, when, when a guy hits the number 40, what, that's it? It's just the body knows that the number is 40 and, and, and things just, you know, like Max Kellerman would like to say, a guy just falls off a cliff. No, it doesn't happen that way. If a guy's putting in work, if a guy's eating healthy, if a guy's staying in shape, and, you know, if, if a guy has the proper tools around him, offensive line, to maybe keep him upright late in his career, then Tom Brady has shown you with time in the pocket He still is one of the best quarterbacks in all of football. And if you don't think he can look pretty damn good for the next three years, then I just don't know what you're watching. I mean, that's that, that I think that's your problem more than anything and what you're actually seeing. So the reality is this, the details are things that you need to look at the, the, the factors at play. It's more than just Garoppolo's going to be a, very good quarterback. He's going to be a franchise quarterback. And you should have got more from him. No, there's more than that. Garoppolo, who, again, a lot of people think is going to be a very good quarterback. He believes in himself. He wants to play. And he knows that as long as Tom Brady's in New England, Garoppolo, he's not going to get a chance to play. Does that make sense to anybody? Sure. But also, with that, maybe even an even bigger thing on top of that, since the guy does want to play and wants to start, is that... He's a free agent after this season. So, if you're the Patriots, what would you try to do? You obviously try to sign the guy. Keep him around, okay? You try to keep him you try to keep Garoppolo around. And reports that came out yesterday suggested that the Patriots did try to sign Garoppolo to a deal and they couldn't give him what he wanted. What did that mean? What 
what does that mean, that, that last pot? They couldn't give him what he wanted. One, I think there's probably, you know, there, there's some money that's involved in that. But two, it's they can't give him the opportunity to be a starting quarterback. They can't do that. So it's that combined with the money. And if you're the Patriots, you you try to bring Garoppolo back, but if you're Garoppolo, you're not going to accept that deal because you want to start. So what do you do? What, you just hold on to the guy? You just keep him the rest of the season. Bill Belichick, here's what he said in a quote. He said yesterday in a conference call, he said, we wrote it out as long as we could. He then said they explored every possible option, but felt this was the decision they needed to make. And it was. It's the decision they needed to make. Some people are looking at it going, well, now you don't have a backup. Well, you do have a backup. Brian Hoyer, as I'm starting this podcast today, the report this morning is that Brian Hoyer, who's been released from the 49ers, he's visiting the Patriots today, and the expectation around the league is that he's going to sign with the Patriots to be their backup quarterback. He is. So if you're concerned about, oh, Patriots, they don't have a backup. No, they do. They have Brian Hoyer. And I'm not trying to tell you that Brian Hoyer is going to come in and save the day if Tom Brady goes down. But the one thing I will tell you is that there is no guarantee that Jimmy Garoppolo is going to come in and save the day if Tom Brady goes down. There's there's just no guarantee. And if you're guaranteeing it, then I just think that you might be looking at Garoppolo and you might have bought into all the hype to the point where maybe you're looking at Garoppolo a little bit unrealistically right now, given where he is in his career and really what he hasn't done in this league. Garoppolo hasn't really done anything to prove to anybody that he's going to be a successful quarterback for an entire season. You just haven't seen it. So for you to guarantee me that is a little insane. The thing that I always look at is that if Tom Brady goes down, or when Tom Brady is done, there is no guaranteeing that anybody is going to come in and be anywhere close to as good as Tom Brady is, has been in his career. There's just there's no guarantee in it. So I would like to see the Patriots hold on to Tom Brady for as long as they possibly can. Like, embrace this right now. I don't know why people don't want to embrace it. I don't know why people want to jump on Twitter Monday night and complain about the backup quarterback getting traded and how they didn't get enough for a backup fucking quarterback. And I had people tweeting me going, he's not a backup, he's going to be a franchise QB in San Fran. Yeah, in San Fran. He's not a a franchise QB for the Patriots. They have their franchise QB still in Tom Brady. What, I don't don't understand why people want to move on from that for a guy that they've never even seen for an extended period of time. That's insane to me. That's so utterly insane. And that thought process right there that you saw, that I saw on Monday night on social media, that you saw Tuesday uh, or heard on Tuesday on the radio or saw Tuesday on TV, all of those things where people complaining about, oh, they didn't get enough for Jimmy Garoppolo. That's why everybody and their mother around the league hates us. That's why everybody hates us here in New England and in Boston when it comes to this Patriots team. Because you sound like a spoiled fucking brat when you're complaining about getting a second-round draft pick from the 49ers for a backup quarterback. Think about that for a second. Think about what you're complaining about. Just for a second. Take a step back. Forget about who the player is. Forget about what you think that player could be in his NFL future. You're complaining about getting a second-round draft pick in the NFL for a backup quarterback. 
to complain about that is utterly insane to the point where you sound like a spoiled asshole. And because we sound like spoiled assholes in this town a lot, that's why the rest of the people around the country with regards to the NFL hate us. They hate everybody here. They hate the Patriots. That sums it up. That sums up the spoiled attitude with this Patriots team. I got news for you. It is never going to get better than Belichick and Brady. It's not. It's just not. And it's going to be, you, know, you got stories on ESPN, right? What's there? A story in the ESPN magazine with Brady's face on it coming out. Excerpts have come out. Or something came out yesterday, a story where, you know, Belichick told friends that he wanted Garoppolo to be a starter. But, you know, some people implying that this is Robert Kraft's decision to keep Brady more than it is Bill Belichick's, and that if it was Belichick's decision, he might have moved on from Tom Brady. I don't I don't know where some of this stuff comes from, but I kind of listen to it and laugh. Because I listen to it and think, do you know how stupid this sounds? Like, are we calling Bill Belichick an idiot? Bill Belichick would be an idiot to sit there and go, I want to move on from Tom Brady right now. He'd be an idiot. Belichick doesn't do that because he doesn't want to move on from Tom Brady right now. He doesn't. I'm seeing a lot of overreactions to the Giancarlo Stanton trade. We all woke up on Saturday to the news, the breaking news, that a blockbuster trade has been agreed to between the New York Yankees and the Miami Marlins in which the Marlins are going to send Giancarlo Stanton to the New York Yankees. Here's the trade. Yankees get Giancarlo Stanton. Um, the Yankees will also take on $265 million of the $295 million owed to him over the next 10 years. Of course, Giancarlo Stanton can opt out after the 2020 season. Now, the Marlins get Stalin Castro, infielder Stalin Castro. They'll also get prospects Jorge Guzman. And Guzman was acquired from the Astros in the Brian McCann trade. And if we're going to say anything about the Astros organization is that we've seen they've had some pretty good prospects over the years. Uh, They traded one of them to get Brian McCann. And so Guzman, we'll see what he is, but he's one of the prospects going to the Marlins. And the other prospect is Jose Devis, who's Rafael Devis' cousin. He actually is. He's Rafael Devis' cousin. So the Marlins get Stalin Castro and prospects Jorge Guzman. And Jose Devis, of course, Giancarlo Stanton going to the Yankees. Let's just first and foremost talk about why this went down and how this went down. Well, it went down. Stanton's going to the Yankees because he didn't want to go to either San Francisco or St. Louis. So Stanton's got the full no, no trade clause. I told you on my podcast last week that I really think the Marlins and Stanton completely butchered this trade. They fucked up because there were reports early on that Stanton didn't want to go here, didn't want to go, didn't want to go there. Then, oh, maybe he would go to this place. Maybe he would go to that place. That, they needed to have a conversation with Stanton, the Marlins, and, and say, we need to get the, we're going to send you someplace you want to go, but don't, let's not let it get out to the places you don't want to go because we want to use some, maybe some of the bigger markets that you won't play for, use them as leverage to some of the, you know, maybe the West Coast markets you want to go to. I, I just I just think they butchered it. Now, all that said, there were actually deals in place to send Stanton to either San Francisco or St. Louis, but Stanton said, no thanks to San Francisco. He said, no thanks to St. Louis. So then what do you got if you're Miami? 
Well, then all of a sudden the Yankees get involved because I think they felt like, they probably felt like, well, maybe there's some leverage here because Miami loses leverage when Stanton starts rejecting places, right? When you got when you got trades in place and the player starts rejecting them, well, the team that's going to trade that player loses a lot of leverage. So Yankees jumped in. You know, had a similar feel to the Yankees jumping into the Alex Rodriguez trade back in 2004, right? 2003, 2004. Uh, the, the only difference is the Red Sox weren't, involved in this one. At least the Red Sox were out on the Giancarlo Stanton uh, trade talks. And I think that's because of the asking price. I'm, I'm sure, you know, if you, you see the Yankees, you see the Yankees trading a roster player. They're trading a major league roster player. I know it's Stalin Castro. It's not like they're trading Judge or Sanchez, but they're trading a roster player. It makes me wonder what type of roster player the Marlins were asking for from the Red Sox that made them basically say no to go along with whatever prospects they wanted with that roster player. Here's the deal. I'm not surprised the Red Sox are out on Stanton. I'm also not surprised Stanton ends up with the Yankees. I've been telling you all offseason, do not sleep on the Yankees. Stanton, there are certain places he wanted to go. He want, He's a West Coast kid. He wanted to go to the West Coast. But, you know, I, I think more so Southern California, like, a, yeah, I, I just think he wanted to go, you know, you look at the Dodgers, you talk about the Dodgers. Huh? All right, the Dodgers are a place that he probably would agree to be traded to. Um, but if he was going to go the East Coast, it would need to be a place in which he had to look at it and go, all right, I this is a great marketing opportunity for me. And I've heard some people say, well, if he's going to agree to New York, why wouldn't he, he agree to be traded to Boston? Look, I'm from Boston. I love this city. I'm born and raised here. I'm not leaving. But when you look at the attraction from a marketing perspective, if you're a big-name player, yeah, you, you have a great marketing opportunity in Boston. But New York City? That's a different marketing opportunity. It is. And, I mean, it's New York City. Come on. So Stanton, he agrees to this trade. Uh, Derek Jeter, who's essentially running the show with the Marlins, he he agrees to send Giancarlo Stanton to the Yankees. And because that happens, a lot of people here in Boston and New England not only feel sort of left out and down in the dumps, but there's a, a, a panic. There's a level of panic that that is going on right now that I just don't understand. I don't. I don't understand it. And that's really the reason I'm here today. To I because I have one message. I have one message today. To Red Sox fans, to people in Boston, to people in New England. Here's my message today. A day after Giancarlo Stanton has been traded to the New York Yankees. My message to the people here in Boston is calm the fuck down. Calm the fuck down. Everything's gonna be okay. All right? Everything's gonna be all right. It is. It's gonna be just fine. It's December 10th. The winter meetings of this week. The Red Sox are going to make some type of move. They are. They need a first baseman. They do. They need a first baseman. And if they wanted to add another pitcher, go ahead. If you see a team that you're going to be a rival with in your division for years to come, and they add another power bat, they add another home run hitter, another slugger, well, then, then maybe how do you counter that? A lot of people are out there saying and panicking saying, Oh, the Red Sox need to add more power. They have to. They have to trade for J.D. Martinez, right? They have to do it. 
Um, they have to go get that guy, a 40 home run hitter. They need to match power with power. Well, whatever happened to matching power with dominant pitching? Like, go get another pitcher if you want. I'd be okay with that rather than going out and get, getting J.D. Martinez. See, I got a problem with the J.D. Martinez thing, and I've said it since day one. It's that you have to give up something to get him. And I'm just looking at the Red Sox organization as a whole, and I'm looking at all these young kids who have all this potential, and the potential isn't just, I mean, it's not just potential. It's actually, it's right now. It's there. We, we witness it. The Red Sox have won 93 games two straight years. And this is another major beef that I have with all this panic and that's going on in the city of Boston. I tweeted some things out yesterday. People have come to, you know, they're coming at me. They're like, hey, oh, the division title isn't good enough. You know, a playoff appearance isn't good enough. Look what they did in the playoffs the last two years. You know, they got swept by the Indians two years ago last year. They got beat by the Astros, and they only won one game. You know, the, 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 going to the playoffs, getting the playoffs isn't good enough. They get to the playoffs, they play the Yankees, they're going to get killed because they got Judge, they got Stanton, right? And people panicking about that. I, but listen, I get you don't have to explain to me that that a champ, a world championship is better than a than a first round exit. Like that's obvious. You save your tweets, save. Yeah, yeah, what is it, 280 characters now? Whatever it is, save your 280 characters. Don't waste your time tweeting to me, explaining that a World Series championship is better than a division title. No shit it is. You don't need to explain that to me. But to, to win a championship, what do you got to do? You got to get to the playoffs. And if you get to the playoffs, how would you prefer to get there? You'd prefer to win the division, wouldn't you? Yeah, you would. So... Winning the division is still important. I get it. It's not the most important thing. Winning a championship is. But to get to the point where you win a championship, you put yourself in the best position to do that by winning your division. And the Red Sox have won the division two years in a row with 93 wins in each of the last two seasons. So I look at that and I say to myself, the sky is not falling. The world is not ending. The Red Sox didn't just lose the World Series yesterday because the Yankees acquired Giancarlo Stanton. Is it a nice addition for the Yankees? Of course it is. If you're the Red Sox, if you're Dave Dombrowski, do you have to look at that acquisition that the Yankees just made, that trade the Yankees just made on Saturday? Do you have to look at that and say, all right, we got some work to do? Of course you do. But the panic that I sense, that I feel, that I see that I hear, that I'm reading in tweets and texts coming my way, the panic that is in this town right now because Stanton is going to the Yankees. To me, this panic level is just absolutely insane. Everybody needs to calm the fuck down, okay? And I I know that you don't want to hear about you don't want to hear about Mookie Betts and how good he is. You don't want to hear about Andrew Benatendi and how good he is. You don't want to hear about Rafael Devers and how good he is. You don't want to hear that Chris Sale is one of the most dominant pitchers in baseball. You don't want to hear that David Price missed most of last season and the Red Sox still won 93 games. You don't want to hear any of that shit. But I got news for you. It's important. It's important stuff to remember. It's important stuff to keep in mind. It's important stuff to 
sit back and go, I guess the Red Sox aren't in such a bad place after all. Because they're not. The Red Sox are not in a bad place.